Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 18, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Great White Throne. read a story about an armed robber who was arrested, and in his wallet, this armed robber had a sheet of paper outlining his ethics. There were, if you will, eight commandments he determined that he would keep. Number one, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. Number two, I will take cash and food stamps, but no checks. Number three, I will rob only at night. Number four, I will not wear a mask. And by the way, you know, that might be a bad idea, but then again, I mean, what do I know? But I think it better if people didn't identify you later. But again, as I say, you know, I, I don't know, maybe, you know, this robber recognized how scary a masked robber was, and this was, you know, to demonstrate his kindness, I guess. Number five, I will not rob mini-marts or 7-Eleven stores. Again, I, I have to interject that that might only mean that there's a lot of competition in those places among robbers, I mean. So number six, if I get chased by a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. Now, here again, I, I'd cross-reference that command with, you know, the first command, which says that he would not kill anyone unless he had to. Anyway, just seemed to jump out at me. Number seven, I really like this one. He says, I will rob only seven months of the year. And I guess he means that he's not greedy and he's willing to observe arrest and take proper care of himself. Good for him. And then last, wait for it and drum roll, please. Number eight, I will enjoy robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. <laughs> turns out our armed robber really is a good guy. And, and it also turns out that the rest of us, well, we're good people too. See, I read a Psychology Today article, which was entitled, How to Know If You Are a Good Person. And the article was predictable. It cited a clinical psychologist who said, at our core, we all have a true self that is kind, compassionate, caring, curious, and calm. You know, it's the environment, the article says, that always gets in the way of this true self. You see, if you're an armed robber, it's the environment that's to blame. And of course, our armed robber already knew that because he had ethics. And then by the end of the Psychology Today article, the author said, maybe the best way to look at our morality isn't labeling ourselves as good or bad. A better suggestion is to define what a good person is in three to five words, and then rate yourself on this continuum. If you see yourself as more than half, you are a relatively good person. To which I respond, you all kind of like our armed robber. I mean, at least he had a code of ethics, which, you know, as you can probably see, makes him way better than the average armed robber. He doesn't kill anyone, of course, unless he has to. You know, that's when things get out of control. Now, I say all of these things with my tongue firmly placed in my cheek because as we come to Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, we are presented with the reality of God's judgment throne. And I'm going to suggest that for a great many people, this will be the most shocking moment of their lives. Suddenly, they will see that it was never about what they thought about themselves. It was always about God's objective standard of righteousness. So let's read our text, Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So let's start with the description of the throne of God. The Bible describes it as a white throne in that it displays the purity of God. Unlike human thrones of justice, this throne has no stain, no sign of corruption, and no hint that anything but righteousness was ever attached to it. We notice next that the earth and sky fled away, that there was no place found for them. You know, it might be tempting to think that this is mere poetry. Maybe it shouldn't be taken literally until we think of what other scripture says about that same thing. Remember back to Revelation 6, 12 to 13. There we read, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it is shaken by a gale. Now, back then, that statement was an anticipation of the end. But now, in chapter 20, the end is upon us. We're also reminded of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. It speaks of waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire, dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Or we might here also think of Paul's words in Romans 8.22, in which we are told that the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption, which might not at first glance sound like the fire that would burn everything. But in the context of Revelation, yep, it surely does. At any rate, it seems to me that when the great and glorious God sits on his throne, the old order of things simply disappear. They flee before him. Next, we're told that the dead, the great and small, all of them stand before the throne. Now, this statement has led a great many Bible teachers to say that, well, it must be that only the unrighteous dead stand before this throne, seeing as the saints are a part of the first resurrection, and this seems to speak of a second resurrection, that is, the bodily resurrection of the unjust. So let's examine that thought. We do know that there is a judgment even for the saints. We know it from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. It speaks of Christians, and it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, a great many argue that the judgment for believers is merely a judgment unto reward. And that may well be the case, but but notice the text speaks of good or evil. Or so it seems, at least in my view, that this corresponds with Paul's earlier words. They're recorded in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. Remember there he said, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 
So we notice then that some believers who have built on the foundation have done so with inferior building materials. And so when the day of judgment comes, they suffer loss, says Paul. That is, the work of a lifetime burns away, but they're saved. That is, there are rewards handed out at the judgment seat of Christ, but there is also a loss, and I guess we mean here, there is a loss of reward, and that sounds right to me. Now, some Christians strongly believe that the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne described in Revelation are two different events. And so they argue that only the unbelievers appear before the great white throne. And I want to stress at this point that this also may well be the case. But I need also to stress that there is no clear teaching in the Bible that says that's so. See, one's reminded here of Jesus' words in Matthew 25, 32 to 34. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then later in verse 41, he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is to say, see, it may well be that right here at the great white throne, Jesus himself walks among all the people who have ever lived, and there he separates them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. But however it is, let's have a look at the drama before the pure and undefiled throne of God's judgment. Verse 12 says, the dead have risen, and they all now stand before the throne. And as the human race stands, one has to imagine a multitude beyond our present imagination. We also see that books are open. And the books, according to verse 12, contain everything that was ever done by every life that has ever lived. Great momentous events are there as well as what we thought to be insignificant events that have long since been forgotten. Only they haven't been forgotten, have they? Every thought, every deed, every action, every failure to act, every motivation, everything is now thoroughly examined in the light of God's undefiled purity, his righteousness. If you think you could withstand such an examination, I, I suspect you're a fool. It may sound early to be planning for a winter retreat in 2020, but now is the time to make sure your spot is guaranteed for the 2020 Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. Join us February 7th to 16th, 2020 for nine nights aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curaçao, Bonaire, and more. Not only will you enjoy the beauty of the Caribbean, but throughout the trip you'll be enriched and challenged by the insightful Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld, experience laughs and encouragement with Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and enjoy special inspirational music, all while being hosted by our ministry team. So register now or find out more by visiting backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Now don't delay, we're looking forward to seeing you on board. Revelation 20 verse 12 tells of books that are opened and that the dead are judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. I have on more than one occasion seen fascinating studies on human memory. 
You know, all of us, over time, fashion our memories in such a way in which we tend to remember so as to make ourselves better than we actually are. We overlook our sins and we over-evaluate our better moments. But no such delusion exists before the great white throne. See, I have no doubt that there is not one human being who will not be shocked when they see the objective record of their own conduct. Paul speaks of the whole world silenced and every mouth stopped as we recognize the gravity of our lives and of our conduct before the one who only knows purity and holiness. But verse 12 says that among all the books which record the deeds of every human being lies another book, the most important book of all. John simply calls this one the book of life. It's important to know that this is not the first time this book is mentioned. In Exodus 32, Moses is pleading with God because the calf idol that Israel has built. And in verse 32, he says, If you do not forgive their sins, he says, then blot my name out of your book that you have written. See, Moses seems to be aware that there is a book in which God records the names of all of those who are his. And we find that same thought in Daniel 12, verse 1. Daniel speaks of the end of the age in which he says, God will deliver his people. And then Daniel adds, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Again, a book that contains the names of God's elect. We find this same book mentioned in the New Testament. In Luke 10, verse 20, Jesus calls his disciples to rejoice, for he says, your names are written in heaven. And Paul, in Philippians 4, verse 3, talks about his fellow workers in the gospel, and then he adds, whose names are in the book of life. You know, Revelation has several references to this book. We found it in chapter 3, verse 5, where Jesus promised the church in Sardis that the one who conquers will never have his name blotted out of the book of life. We found it again in chapter 13, verse 8, where we were told that, that all those who worship the beast are among those whose names were not written in the book of life. Interestingly enough, in that very text, we are told that this book was written before the foundation of the world. And that idea corresponds perfectly with Paul's words in Ephesians 1 verse 4, where Paul says, God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. But I fear I'm getting off track, so please forgive me. But I need to say the book of life is the most important book for any human being. For if you rely on the book of deeds, you have no chance for heaven. But if you rely on the book of life, you'll be saved in the final judgment. And that, my friends, is the gospel. The book of life is the book of all those whose sins are not counted against them. Let me restate the matter. So you have often asked people, do you think you're going to heaven when you die? And, and amazingly, or perhaps not so amazingly, people most often respond, yeah, I do. And furthermore, the great majority of North Americans, regardless of their religious convictions, are convinced that they're going to heaven when they die. It's one of those firmly held beliefs that to challenge it often results in cries of, I mean, how dare you? If you contrast that to what Europeans in the Middle Ages thought about this, well, the contrast is stunning. See, a great fear of most people in that era was that they were going to hell or perhaps to purgatory, wherein they would suffer for a very long period of time. They thought back then that their sins were so serious that God would never overlook them. Well, then what accounts for that difference? Well, the answer has everything in the world to do, not with the justice of God, nor with how they conducted their lives, 
but with the values that are stressed by the culture in which they live. And when I began my discussion on this subject, I pointed out a very predictable article in Psychology Today, which taught that we're all good people. And might I add that most North Americans don't think of themselves as sinners or as men and women who have offended divine justice for which they must be punished. Instead, even if they are bank robbers or murderers, they think they're good. I say that because of a recent study that was done that showed that a great number of murderers being housed in prison will admit that they did a horrible thing, but it was made even more horrible because they know that inside of themselves they're basically good people. The scene before the great white throne of God shows us that God is pure and undefiled, meaning that he's not swayed even one iota by what people in the Middle Ages thought or by what people in the 21st century now believe. Whether you believe you're going to get to heaven is irrelevant as to whether or not you're going to get there. God decides that matter. You don't. And it's not about how you feel or what your culture has led you to believe. And furthermore, when most contemporary North Americans are asked how they know they're going to get to heaven, they commonly respond, I've done my best. That is, they're placing their confidence in the book of deeds and not in the book of life. But the very bad news is this. No one is going to make it on the basis of their deeds. When God is done examining every life, all will be exposed and all will see that no one did their best. Your memory of your behavior has deceived you, but God was never deceived. It is for that reason I make an appeal. You need the cross of Jesus. You, you need Christ to pay the punishment for your sins. You need to receive mercy by throwing yourself upon the mercy that's found in his cross. You need to confess that you're a sinner, that you're unworthy of heaven. And so you must come to God as a beggar, appealing for divine mercy. You must commit your soul to Christ Jesus, and you must ask him to create in you a new heart that clings to Christ and seeks him for mercy. John 1 verse 12 says, to all who received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God who are then born again. And don't you see, you need to stop relying on the book of deeds, for you must hear from God that your grade in that book is an F. You fail, but Christ has not failed. You need to trust him, pray, ask Christ to redeem you from the judgment to come. Throw your life into his hands. Well, now, let's look closely at what we find in verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one of them according to what they had done. Notice that both the sea and Hades gave up the dead. John is not saying that those who died at sea in some fashion were in a different place than those who had died on the land. I, I think since we get to the next chapter, chapter 21, we are going to be told that the sea is no more. Now, despite the variant views of what the sea represents, we do know that in the book of Revelation, it seems to refer to the fallen order of the human race. And you might remember here that, that earlier on in the book, back in chapter 13, verse 1, that the Antichrist is said to have arisen out of the sea, meaning he arises out of the turbulent nations of the human race. 
Hence, when John says that the sea gave up the dead, he means that the fallen human race, subject to rebellion and eventually to death and destruction, that is to say, all of that was unable to hold back every human being from its appointment with destiny. It tells me that no human being is ever forgotten. All are remembered and raised before the throne of judgment. I recently read an account of an atheist who said that the happiest thought he has ever considered was that there was no life after death and that his life didn't mean a thing. This knowledge, he said, was comforting because he said it freed him to do whatever he wanted without the threat of an eternal accounting. He would die and would be forever forgotten. But here we read, the sea of forgetting gives up the dead. It's a vain hope that my life won't be remembered. That that hope is going to be reversed. And of course, Hades gives up the dead. I've already made the point that Hades is the intermediate state of all those who die outside of Christ. It's it's not a pleasant place. It's already a place of suffering and sorrow. But in the end, neither Hades nor the sea can hold back the dead. For there is this moment with destiny when all men and women will have to face the God who made them. Verse 14 says that in the end of the matter, when all are judged by their deeds, that death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire as says verse 15, those whose names are not written in the book of life. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And of course, Jesus was referring to God the Father. Fear God, he says, for he does throw unrighteous men and women in hell. Do you see, it's not true that God would never send anyone to hell. It's not true that we only go there by our own volition. God's throne is white. It's untainted by sin. It's pure, and it will not overlook our sin. Now is the time to go to Christ for mercy. John, I think there's a real sense sometimes within us that we we think we can measure up uh, to what God expects of us, and as a result of that, we'll we'll find ourselves in heaven one day. But but really, we don't measure up. We need to we need to call out on God's mercy. Yeah, I mean, this is really the message that that's here. Um, ben, you know, the, all the things that people say, you know, I'm done as as well as the next guy, uh, is completely irrelevant. I mean, many of us have simply a vision of God in which he looks exactly like ourselves. And looking like ourselves, you know, he's going to think we've just done fine. Um, and, and this idea of absolute holiness, absolute righteousness, what, you know, we, that's what we will face. So the only hope that we have is mercy. That's what the book of life is. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. Truth and Life magazine is our free bi-monthly ministry magazine. Each issue offers unique Bible teaching articles from Dr. John Newfeld, words of encouragement from Phil Calloway, and a host of other engaging and thoughtful articles from guest authors and pastors designed to challenge and instruct you in God's Word. Along with Bible teaching and engagement articles, Truth and Life magazine includes Dr. Newfeld's Read Through the Bible in a Year guide, updates and news on all Back to the Bible ministry events and activities, and information on all of our free Bible resources, like Truth and Life magazine. 
If you'd like information on receiving the magazine or any of the resources of Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. One last note, the next issue of Truth and Life magazine is available in April, so sign up for your free subscription today.